From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A call to police for help has a deadly ending. We get the latest on the case of a civilian shot by a deputy in Clear Creek County. Then a new season of our political podcast, the team at Purplish, talks about moderates and the role unaffiliated voters will play in determining the future, particularly of the Republican Party in Colorado. Every election season, you kind of hear the same thing, right? Republicans paint Democrats as being far too extreme and Democrats paint Republicans as being far too extreme. I feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle and it's really up to voters to decide what is too extreme. And the sweet, savory music of Grand Junction's Crepe Girl. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A police shooting in the mountains west of Denver is now a big public controversy. Even Colorado's governor has weighed in on the death of artist Christian Glass. On June 10th, Glass's car was stuck near Silver Plume. He called 911 for help. Clear Creek County Sheriff's deputies responded, and a standoff ensued. It ended when Deputy Andrew Buen shot and killed Glass. Buen remains on duty, but there's growing public outcry about whether lethal force was justified. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry helped break this story. And Allison, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Tell us just a little bit more about Christian Glass, who he was and why he was on the road that night. Yeah, he was a 22-year-old living in Boulder, taking some computer coding classes to support an art career that he was trying to launch. He was also a trained chef. And I don't know if anyone knows what he was doing late on the road that night in Silver Plume. He was alone. And he told the 911 dispatcher that he'd gotten his car stuck and that he was afraid. You know, he sounded a little off in the 911 call. Yeah, he acted slightly paranoid, but he definitely was not threatening. Um, he told the dispatcher that he loved her. So your car is stuck? Yes, my car is stuck. Could you please, you're sending someone, right? You've tracked my location. My name's Christian James Gloss. G-L-A-S-S is my last name. G-L-A-S-S, okay. How, how far out is help? How give far me, out is help, madam? Give me just a second. We're radioing out, radio in right now, okay? I would be acting this way with a, with a, with a male officer as well. I apologize. Okay, okay, yeah, no, it's okay. Stuff. Thanks very much. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you. Yeah. Did Glass have a criminal history? No, and his mother said at the press conference last week that he'd never hurt anyone in his life. You have seen the body camera footage. How long did the encounter between Glass and the deputies last, and, and what went down? 
It lasted about 80 minutes. It came out, it came down to really the fact that the deputies wanted Glass to get out of his car and he didn't want to. He said he didn't feel safe. So that was sort of the standoff that just kept going and going. Within a few minutes of them arriving on the scene, they, they threatened, the deputies threatened to break the windows of his car, drag him out. You can hear Glass through the body camera audio saying, please, Lord, don't break the windows. Please, Lord, don't let them break the windows. He was making a prayer gesture with his hands. I will note he had two knives from a rock store and a rubber mallet and a hammer in his car. He offered to throw them out of the car uh, when the deputies arrived, and the deputies said, no, don't touch them. Uh, But in the end, he was holding the knife in the front seat when he was shot and killed. Is there any record of Glass having mental or emotional issues? His parents say he had a deep depressive episode a few years ago and had come out of it. He was also on some medication for ADHD. Um, They say he was always worried about pleasing people, and that may have come off as some paranoia. You know, I don't think they totally knew what to make of the 911 call either because it sounded a little bit more serious than that, but it's it's kind of unclear. His toxicology report that came back for the from the autopsy mm. found he had very little alcohol in his system and some THC, but that too was really relatively low. Do you have any idea why he refused to get out of the car? It's a good question. You know, I don't, except he told officers pretty plainly that he was afraid to get out of the car. And I, I think that fear is pretty palpable as the officers on the scene start escalating things, uh, start threatening things. It's dark, you know. I think he just got more and more scared and more willing to just sort of sit there, you know, even when some of the other officers on scene, because more and more kept arriving. For lack of a better word, like we're playing good cop. You know, they were trying to give him food and drinks, trying to coax him out of the car. But I think by that time, he was just frozen and scared and wanting to sit there. Kind of paralyzed in the car. What have police said about why they shot him? Last week, I interviewed Clear Creek County Under Sheriff Bruce Snelling, who said the reason Deputy Andrew Buen used lethal force was because he was afraid Glass was about to stab the Georgetown police marshal out of a window with that rock knife I mentioned earlier. Does the body cam evidence support that? So you can see the body camera footage at the moment before Buen fires his gun, and Glass has a knife in his hand. He's kind of thrashing back and forth inside the front seat. And there is one angle of a body camera that you can see him putting a hand out the window towards the Georgetown police marshal. This was after he'd been tased twice and shot with beanbag guns, by the way. Now, I can't really see the knife when he has his hand out of the window, but I don't also have the technology to slow down that body camera and whatnot. I do want to say, though, it's noteworthy, is that the Georgetown police marshal was not the one who fired his gun, right? He didn't even have his gun out. He had just tased glass, but that was it. Presumably the person who would have been threatened, in other words. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. If he was so afraid, uh, why didn't he pull out his Glock? You know, the, the, the person who fired was standing on the other side of the car, and he didn't have a very good view. You can kind of see what he can see with the body camera. And he, it didn't look like he could really see what Christian was doing with his hand on the other side. So, you know, the car was in the way. And anyway, it's, it's a little unclear. As we heard, Christian Glass's parents held a news conference last week. And uh, what more did they have to say? Uh, it's devastating. You know, they're, they were 
said that they were a very peaceful, quiet family. They always have trusted law enforcement. They assumed that if law enforcement shoots and kills people, that that person had done something wrong. You know, they feel very upset about a press release that was issued by the undersheriff the very next day after the shooting that said that Glass tried to stab a deputy. They say that wasn't true. Uh, they also say that Glass, you know, is a quiet kid. He loved art and rocks and cooking, and he deserves to be alive today. He had done nothing wrong. He was just too scared to get out of his car. He was a gentle soul with a big heart. He had so much more to give, and I miss him so much. Glass's mother is from the UK, and his father is from New Zealand. And, you know, they're appalled that American law enforcement can get away with this and that the deputy who killed Glass is back on patrol. If you commit a crime, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're a member of the public, if you're a member of police force, I think we all have to be held accountable. Um, and if this was a member of public that shot Christian five times, he'd be in jail, right? And so um, the fact that he's out in the police force within days shows that they just think it's all fine. Again, this happened in June, but it really only emerged as a big controversy last week. Why the gap, Allison? Yeah, you know, this got attention because the family hired lawyers, and those lawyers last week released body camera footage to me and two other reporters. And then they had a big press conference for everyone. You know, I'll say at the time, it barely got mentioned on any news sites. The press release put out by the sheriff made it sound like, you know, kind of usual, and I hate saying this, but it does happen about once a week in Colorado, where a man is armed, threatens to kill police, and then is shot and killed. But, you know, there but for the grace of body cameras, right? When you watch the entire episode, you can see that it was much, much more complicated and and different than that. Law enforcement officers are often put on leave after a shooting like this, but mm-hmm. uh, Deputy Buen is indeed on the job. W- what did the undersheriff say about that? Yeah, he was on leave for a little bit. Uh, and then he said, the undersheriff Snelling said that he allowed the deputy to kind of make a call about what he was going to do now, and he returned to work in July. And the Clear Creek County District Attorney is investigating this. What's the status Mm -hmm. there? You know, honestly, I haven't heard much from her. She put out a statement when the body camera was released last week that she's still receiving evidence from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And when that's complete, she'd make a decision about whether to take it to a grand jury or I suppose she could direct file charges against Deputy Buen or Mm -hmm. others. Or I suppose she could decide that there isn't enough evidence of any crime and not file charges. We don't know. She hasn't called me back. She's not. She's only speaking through press releases. Uh, I understand there has been public criticism of the sheriff's department from two prominent sources. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this has gone internationally viral, Ryan. Uh, we, we know how sometimes police killings ignite movements. We saw so much of that in the summer of 2020. And we're in the early stages of that now. I don't know what's going to happen from here. But Governor Polis made an extraordinary statement last week that he was devastated for Glass's family, that Glass deserved to be alive. And then Clear Creek County commissioners also condemned their own sheriff for the killing, which I personally have never seen in covering these things. I mean, think about it. It will be the county commission that will write the Glass family a check if they sue and settle this case. Uh, Allison Sherry, justice reporter at CPR, while we have you here, let's get a little bit of an update on another high-profile case you're following. Um, This is the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora police custody in 2019. 
The autopsy report in that case was recently amended to change the cause of death. Is that right? Yes, we have that confirmed from the coroner. She acknowledged there'd been a supplemental report on the original autopsy, which, as you know, and as we've reported, was originally an undetermined cause and manner of death which back in 2019 was the entire reason cited by the local DA for not filing any criminal charges against law enforcement in that case. Okay, so presumably amending the autopsy report means new legal pathways here. CPR has actually sued to get a hold of this report, which should otherwise be made public in just the last few seconds. Do you know where that stands? Yeah, we sued the coroner. A handful of other media jo- outlets joined us. Uh, they have. We had a court hearing last week. They now have seven days to presu- pr- produce the autopsy, but it could be redacted. So there's a lot of TBD area still on this, Ryan. Okay, we'll await developments. That is CPR News Justice reporter Allison Sherry. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Purplish is back. The new season of our politics podcast focuses on how moderate voters may affect the midterm elections and how candidates are courting their votes. Public affairs reporters Caitlin Kim, Andrew Kenny, and Benta Berkland explore how issues like abortion and same-sex marriage factor in. I met Frankie Martinez outside a farmer's market in Pueblo. She and her husband had just moved from Denver, and I was looking for voters to talk to. I have to admit, I thought I knew where she stood politically when she told me this. I gotta say the most exciting thing about moving to Pueblo is being able to vote against uh, Lauren Boebert. That's the district's far-right congresswoman. But Frankie, she's no left-wing liberal. I am independent because I don't really like either party. I think the Democrats act weak. I think the Republicans act like bullies. I like the middle ground and I'd like to see some more middle ground. The middle ground. There seems to be less and less of that, at least politically speaking, these days. Frankie jokes that in Denver, she was probably more conservative than the people around her. In Pueblo. And now I definitely feel that I am less conservative than everybody around me. We hopped on a Zoom call recently because I had a question for her. Can I ask for you, where is the balance? Somewhere between taking care of people and not giving away the farm. You know, like I think that the country needs to be managed kind of like you manage your household. Frankie is exactly the kind of voter Republicans like Senate candidate Joe O'Day are going to need on their side if they're gonna win statewide. But where exactly is that sweet spot in the political middle? And more importantly, can staking out some moderate ground help bring more red back into Colorado politics to keep it truly purplish? These might be the biggest questions of this election cycle. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this season, the midterm elections. I'm Caitlin Kim, and I'm here with my colleagues, Benta Berklin. Hey, Caitlin. And Andy Kenny. Hello. And our topic today is moderates. 
who are the candidates, especially the Republicans, who are trying to claim this title? And what even makes a moderate a moderate, at least in Colorado? This is a crucial question because for years, Colorado voters have been rejecting Republicans, at least statewide. The last time Colorado supported a Republican for president was in 2004. The last time Colorado elected a Republican governor was even farther back in 2002. Ancient times. Yes, exactly. Most recently, Colorado elected a Republican U.S. Senator, Cory Gardner, and that was in 2014. But he was voted out after just one term in office. Yeah. So the party's struggling to figure out now exactly what kind of Republican will Colorado voters especially those crucial moderate, non-affiliated voters, the mysterious middle, the ones who can decide elections. What kind of Republicans do they want, if any? So if we're going to talk about moderates, I think we have to start with a race that has gained Colorado the most national interest in recent weeks, and that's the Colorado U.S. Senate race. And that's because we have a Republican Senate candidate, Joe O'Day, who many in the party see as their sort of best hope for winning a statewide race in almost a decade. And he's trying to do that by embracing some positions that run contrary to many in his party, positions that are arguably more in the middle of public opinion, at least in Colorado. Yeah, and when you say national attention, He's been profiled by The New York Times, The Washington Post. And actually, we've been talking a lot about this guy since the primary season when, you'll remember, he won a big victory over a hard right candidate. And I'm super excited to be at the top of this ticket and make sure we kick some ass this November. That's right. We actually let him say that on Purplish. I know. <laughs> but now he's in the general election, and it's been really interesting to watch O'Day try to find and stay in this at least moderate sounding groove while Democrats are trying really hard to knock him right back out of it by defining him on a bunch of different issues. The most notable of those issues is certainly abortion. Yeah. O'Day is very vocal that he supports abortion in the early part of pregnancy up until 20 weeks. Okay. And that is very different from most Republicans in the state legislature and some of the top leaders in the Republican Party in mm -hmm. Colorado who are pretty unified in opposing all legal abortion. Mm. But even though O'Day's stance may fall more in line with voters, uh, he still isn't as supportive of abortion rights as most Coloradans. Voters here numerous times at the ballot have rejected all efforts to limit abortions. Meanwhile, Democrats are really trying to emphasize that O'Day doesn't have a voting record, that he says he supports in a limited fashion these abortion rights, but he hasn't been in Congress, he hasn't held public office, he hasn't had to vote on things. He's been, for better or for worse, a businessman, and he owns a construction company. And Democrats are also pointing out that O'Day said he would have backed President Trump's Supreme Court justice nominees. Democratic State Representative Meg Froelich has been especially outspoken on this. Mm -hmm. uh, she was the main sponsor of a bill that passed last legislative session that codified abortion access in state law. Mm -hmm. And Froelich says she doesn't think O'Day really can take a moderate stance on an issue like abortion mm -hmm. and pick and choose what is a legal abortion. When O'Day labeled that bill reckless, what he's saying is that he or any politician should be able to determine what is early, what is late in a pregnancy, who is worthy of privacy and who isn't, um, who is worthy of dignity and bodily autonomy. 
And O'Day, as we know, has recently um, stated that he voted for Prop 115, which was a total ban on X number of weeks. In this case, it was 22. Just a reminder that Proposition 115 was on the ballot in Colorado across the state, and that was two years ago in 2020. That initiative failed by about 20 points. Right. And you hear this a lot from Democrats, whether it be Michael Bennett, his Democratic opponent, or, you know, Congresswoman Diana DeGette, that O'Day's stance on abortion may be pretty liberal for the Republican Party, but it's still too extreme for Colorado. Another topic where O'Day's gotten attention is the fact that he's not a, quote, Trump guy, according to him. He's Mm -hmm. said he doesn't want Trump or, for that matter, Biden to run in 2024, saying either of them being on the ticket would be bad for the the country. (laughs) And even so, he still stopped short of saying whether he would vote for Donald Trump if Trump is ultimately the presidential nominee once again in 2024. So he's, he's hedging there. But he does stick to this line that Trump just should not run. Let's move on from Trump. Let's not have him in another election. He'll repeat that again and again and again in interviews. And that's another case where O'Day is talking differently from a lot of Republican candidates in other states. And to add a few more things to the I'm not a far right Republican list, O'Day says he supports citizenship for dreamers. You know, Mm -hmm. he signed his name to a letter urging the Senate and Senate Republicans in particular to codify same sex marriage protections into Mm. law. You know, Senate Republicans aren't exactly rallying around that bill. And it's still an open question if they can get enough GOP support to overcome the filibuster. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's another way O'Day is trying to signal the kind of senator he'd be if Coloradans elect him. I keep thinking back to his acceptance speech after the primary when he declared he's going to be the Colorado Joe Manchin. I will ruffle feathers and I will always put America and Colorado first. So, you know, he was hearkening to Joe Manchin taking a stand at least for a while against some big Democratic priorities. But of course, O'Day has kind of stopped talking about Joe Manchin since Joe Manchin finally agreed to help (laughs) Democrats pass their climate and tax reform bill. So he he dropped that line pretty quickly. You know, that's the problem with saying that you're going to be a a Joe Manchin because even Joe Manchin gets in line and helps his party pass Mm -hmm. things. And so far, when reporters have pressed O'Day about, you know, which Republican policies he'd join Democrats to block in Congress or maybe even to pass, Uh he hasn't really been able to offer any. Well, and like we heard from Frankie in the first part of this episode, voters often say they want politicians to work together, get things done, be more moderate. They don't like how polarized the political climate is at this moment. But often it, it can also be the politicians who are the most uncompromising who voters get the most passionate about. Lauren Boebert. Right. And, and and also just because a voter wants bipartisanship, less vitriol, that doesn't mean these very same voters don't care deeply about certain issues. I guess what you're saying is they may say that they want a compromising tone, but they still care about very specific things very deeply. And what Democrats are trying to do is remind voters that they may not agree with O'Day on all those issues, on abortion. They may not agree with the fact that he wants less government intervention on climate change than Michael Bennett does, or that he said, we don't really need any more gun laws. I do think it's still notable, though, that O'Day is taking these more middle-of-the-road positions on some topics. And Mm -hmm. it was clear Democrats were worried this could resonate with voters 
if you remember back to the primary, Democratic groups spent millions of dollars trying to mm-hmm. defeat O'Day mm-hmm. in that Republican primary in favor of someone who was much more extreme. That's right. Democrats really tried to keep O'Day off the ballot, and ultimately he got onto the ballot by winning the primary. And now that he is, Lynn, you've spent a lot of August driving around the Colorado countryside, <laughs> hithering yawn, putting <laughs> countless miles on whatever car you were driving. <laughs> what, what happened? What did you hear from people? You talked to a ton of voters. Do they like what O'Day's saying? Do they buy what he's selling? You know, based on the voters I spoke with, I think it could be a tough sell for O'Day. You know, take Frankie, who we heard from at the top of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, she believes in fiscal responsibility. You know, she doesn't want to defund the police. She doesn't care which bathroom people use. And she says O'Day passes her litmus test when it comes to abortion rights and former President Trump. Okay. You know, and she also likes his, like, working class, you know, bringing himself up backstory. Yeah. So you'd think it'd be a really good pickup opportunity. Sure, yeah. But he hasn't won her over. I'm curious why not, because it it seems like he would have based on what you just said. He scored like 10 points so far. Yeah, I know. But she's still leaning towards Bennett, she says, because even though she works in the oil and gas industry, she thinks more needs to be done to transition to renewables. And Hmm. she doesn't think O'Day's in the right place on that. Hmm. She believes in tighter gun safety measures. And again, O'Day didn't support the bipartisan bill that passed Congress. She doesn't like how O'Day seemed to fault, quote unquote, the political elites for rising crime and drug use. It just doesn't strike me as centrist. It sounds it sounds blamey. It sounds judgy. It sounds um, unkind and caring. So I'm not sure about all his positions. I think he's trying to carve out a moderate space, but he still sounds to me like like he's maybe not nice or something, <laughs> which I know it sounds crazy, but it, it kind of matters. I think it just shows how nuanced all of this is and delicate in a way, because you have candidates like O'Day trying to be a moderate. Mm -hmm. It's about the tone of the candidate and also their stance on positions. So if Frankie feels like O'Day is betraying this moderate ideology, not showing enough compassion, how does he counter that since he doesn't have a voting record? I think it does raise that question of, is there enough trust these days for an untested candidate? You know, it's one thing to have family members and people who've worked for you in construction to say they trust you, which is what O'Day has done in his ads. But given his lack of a political record and lack of experience, I wonder if voters will trust a trust me right now kind of line. I think that's hard for all candidates across the political spectrum. Not long ago, voters in Colorado ousted Republican Senator Cory Gardner because, in part, a lot of voters didn't feel like they trusted him to stand up to Trump and the GOP party. So I think a lot of this current U.S. Senate race may not even really be about O'Day specifically and Bennett specifically. It's just Mm -hmm. what's happening at the national level Which party controls the U.S. Senate? You know, we've talked about do they trust an untested candidate, one who's not been in office? There's also plenty of dislike for candidates who have been in office, trust and faith in Congress is at an all-time low. And that's what O'Day is trying to take advantage of, to say, I'm somebody new. Yeah. Do you buy it? It's usually a good thing to not be a politician. That's correct. (laughs) Right. But as one voter told me, we had a non-politician in the presidency not too long ago, and that didn't actually turn out that well. And this, I think, goes to like a larger headwind that O'Day is facing. Mm-hmm. Even moderate voters who might want to support a Republican, a moderate Republican these days to sort of help that wing of the party, they're just worried about the direction of the GOP in general, especially right now in a post-Roe world. 
They just don't necessarily want to perhaps empower Republicans in the Senate, for example, right now. But on the other hand, we saw in the primaries that lots of moderate and unaffiliated voters who normally vote in the Democratic primary went over and supported O'Day on purpose because they wanted to choose the more centrist, less extreme Republican candidate in the primary. So there is an interest among moderates in reforming the Republican Party. Yeah. The question is, do they want to reform it all the way into Congress or just change who the nominees are for the party? I think voters want to feel like they have a legitimate choice in the general election. Mm -hmm. And they don't want it to be a candidate that's too far to the right or too far to the left that, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it really doesn't feel like you're weighing the issues and making this thoughtful decision. It's kind of like, "Mm, I don't really have a choice because I can't vote for this one person. And now that they face that choice, to me, it's like, can O'Day, by saying the right things, so to speak, about abortion, about other issues, can he shed some of the baggage of the National Party and then allow voters to see just the message on inflation, just the message on big government and find their way to supporting him once you get rid of some of the rest of the baggage? So we've spoken a lot about the Senate race, but there are other Republican candidates that are trying to walk this fine line when it comes to appealing to a broad swath of voters. Andy, Benta, I'm just kind of curious What races are sticking out to you? Benta, why don't you go first? Well, I think Republicans have a strong slate of statewide candidates for the legislative seats as well, the state legislature. And I'd argue it's one of the reasons is because these candidates are fairly moderate, more moderate than what we've seen nationally from Republicans. You especially see that in the Secretary of State's race, where you have a candidate, Pam Anderson, who is standing directly opposed to the elements of her party who question election integrity. Anderson beats Tina Peters, the clerk in Mesa County, in the GOP primary. And she's been very vocal on that issue and hasn't been afraid to take on members of her party. I wonder if she might have an opportunity because maybe some people will want to see a minority party member running elections. Would that build trust? Also, as the campaign season's gone on and political environment has shifted around a little bit over the summer, you've actually seen some candidates try to get more in the center, especially on issues like abortion and especially in the congressional races. Or actually, in some cases, they just have stopped talking about it or stopped having it on their websites. That's what happened with Barbara Kirkmeyer, the Republican congressional candidate in the 8th District, which is kind of north and northeast of Denver. She just totally removed her abortion policy from her website at some point late in the summer. And another Republican congressional candidate, Eric Adlin, who's running in the 7th congressional district, you're seeing him try to thread a needle on topics like abortion. He supports sending the issue back to the state. And while he doesn't necessarily agree with the Colorado law, he says he would support it. He wouldn't vote for a nationwide abortion ban, just like he wouldn't support codifying Roe into law. So he supported overturning Roe and giving it back to the states to decide. Exactly. Which is what happened. And this is sort of an aside, but I talked to one GOP statehouse candidate Hmm. who said when people ask him what kind of Republican he'll be, he says, I'm a fiscal conservative and socially awesome. (laughs) And so basically he's trying to sidestep taking a position and talking about those more controversial social issues. Oh, cute, I guess. (laughs) I mean, maybe laugh. To bring it back to Odlin for a second, though, and something we talked about a bit with O'Day, too, you know, when I spoke to Odlin in August, he kept talking about finding a policy balance and sort of listening to everyone. You know, he's running in a Democratic-leaning district that in a big red wave year could be winnable for Republicans. So he has to run to the center. But he's also sort of struggling on the specifics. I actually asked him, I wanted to know if he could name any Democrat-backed 
bills that he would have supported in recent years. Not in recent history. Uh, there, there might be tenants I support, but, but right now they, these, these have had a very partisan agenda that I, I found problematic. So, I mean, there might be some that I just can't recall. Uh, the, the major, the ones have got a lot, a lot of publicity recently. Um, I, I had a hard time seeing how they were, were moderate in nature. And just to remind people, some of those bipartisan bills include infrastructure spending. It includes the PACT Act, which was toxic exposure for veterans, of which he's one. So I think it goes back to the larger issue of you can say you're going to break with your party and work across the aisle all you want on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. But the number of lawmakers who actually do it seem to be shrinking Mm -hmm. in number. It's easier to say than do. And apparently it's also getting harder to say what you would even do. So Adlin's in the 7th, which is a lot of Jeffco west of Denver. And besides talking about where he wants to work in the middle, he also swings pretty hard right in some areas. On same-sex marriage, he said that he wants to restore the decision to the states, which would imply overturning the Supreme Court decision that created a national right to same-sex marriage. And he has called the 2020 election, quote, absolutely rigged and later backtracked on that to some extent. You know, we have been really focused on the Republican candidates so far in this episode, but Mm -hmm. what are you guys seeing on the Democratic side? Are they in danger of going too far to the left and damaging their reputation with moderate voters in Colorado? Well, certainly that's how Republicans are trying to frame Democrats. Big government, pandemic overreach, lack of parental control and education. I think that Democrats are very focused on, hey, we don't believe the lie that the election was stolen. We believe climate change is real. We believe the science behind COVID-19 is real. That's what they're saying. Yes. So I think Democrats are definitely trying to counter that with some of the more far-right elements of the Republican Party. Meanwhile, Republicans have, they've also got, you know, four years of Democratic rule in Colorado to contrast themselves against, where Democrats have passed a lot of laws and Republicans are now blaming those laws for some of the problems we've got now. They've been focusing a lot on the bill that had lowered penalties for certain kinds of drug possession. That's come up tons in the fentanyl conversation. And maybe I'm just a little cynical, but I feel like every election season, you kind of hear the same thing, right? Republicans paint Democrats as being far too extreme, and Democrats paint Republicans as being far too extreme. And I feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle, and it's really up to voters to decide what is too extreme. Now, in discussing the different races and how Republican candidates are trying to position themselves more squarely in the middle, I also think we need to take a step back. And I'm curious, what are you hearing about what makes a moderate or centrist Republican these days? I've heard some people talk about the 2020 presidential election and whether or not a candidate believes the falsehood that 2020 election was stolen, despite the evidence showing that it was not stolen. I I feel like that's a pretty low bar, though, because Republican Congressman Ken Buck doesn't believe the 2020 election was stolen. I don't think anyone would characterize Ken Buck as a moderate. (laughs) No. That's a really good point. For me, I wonder if one of the higher bars that separates moderates from the farther right is how they talk about social fears, like critical race theory taking over the schools, Do they engage in the kind of rhetoric about good versus evil, communist deep state? And that one can be a little bit messier because 
you hear from Republican politicians and your more moderate political consultants who don't really want much to do with, say, again, the critical race theory. But then a lot of voters do seem interested in it. So I'm not sure how much of a dividing line that is between moderate and far right. What you're talking about regarding the social issues, I think, speaks to some of the larger challenges the GOP is facing in Colorado. Hmm. There were a lot of white, educated voters who turned away from the party during the Trump years. And now I think the Republican Party is trying to figure out how to get them back into the fold, Uh. while the Democratic Party is trying to figure out how to keep them in their fold. Exactly. And our editor alerted us to a map that was shared by a pollster. And what this map shows is that Colorado, and it looks from the map, has more counties than anywhere in the country in which white people with a college degree will be the majority of people casting ballots this November. Hmm. And in Colorado, it wasn't just the Denver metro area. There was a big swath in western Colorado, too, spanning north to south. Huh. So like Lynn was saying, GOP is figuring out which of these issues appeals to those educated voters. Yeah. And and I think, and I know our editor is going to hate me saying this, that is something we'll be finding out after no. election day. We will have to wait and see. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is something we've discussed amongst ourselves. This question of, is the GOP brand post-Trump, post-January 6th, post-Roe, is it all just too toxic for Colorado right now? Mm-hmm. Talking to Frankie... She likes old school Republicans, Republicans that some would call rhinos right now, you know, Republicans Mm. name only, the idea of a compassionate conservatism. And she sees the Republican Party splintering. And what she's really worried about is one faction in particular. A violent faction, a violent, frightening, heavily armed fraction. Freedom! And then I wonder what happened to the old school that you actually could sit there at the table and be like, well, I don't really agree with that, but I like where you're going with it, or I understand, or I, you know, I agree with half of what you're saying, not all of what you're saying. She worries that the moderate Republicans have disappeared. And Hmm. I spoke to other unaffiliated voters who say, again, that they would support a moderate Republican, but they feel like they just can't do it Hmm. right now, given everything that's happened in the last couple of years. Well, all this raises the question of one way or the other, what's the future for the party in Colorado if candidates like Joe O'Day and Pam Anderson win? If they become the face of the party here, you can imagine a lot more people talking like them. Or if they lose, where does the party go if the other approach didn't work, if this approach didn't work, what is next? I think that's such a good question because you know, Frankie's saying she wants to support, quote, this old school traditional Republican. And those are the types of candidates, by and large, Republicans nominated here. These, these are the candidates that came out of the primaries, probably the best candidates Republicans could possibly have. In terms of electability. Yes, to win statewide races. And even Democrats I've talked to, they're glad that these are the Republican candidates. The average Democrat, you know, not the Democrats who spent money to oust them in the primary. But like if you go out and talk to Democratic voters and even lawmakers, they feel like it's good for democracy to have this legitimacy Mm. among candidates. Mm -hmm. So not the election deniers, not the people with the most extreme positions. So I think that's why this election in particular is so critical for the Republican Party in Colorado, because where do they go if they don't make inroads when we have an unpopular Democratic president and Democratic majorities. In the end, it may not be how people feel about sort of what is or isn't moderate or what is or is too extreme. And I think this is what Republicans are hoping for, that people are going to vote based on the state of the economy and the cost of living in Colorado. 
I think that's right. When we talk to voters, people have a lot of nuanced and differing and sometimes contradictory positions on issues. It's hard to find a candidate that you may agree with on every single issue. So what will those voters be weighing? What will be the driving factor for someone who's really worried about crime but also supports abortion access, who maybe doesn't like how the Democrats have handled certain issues at the state house? How are they going to pair those issues? I think for Democrats, their biggest challenge is, like you said, that they are in the majority and cost of living is high and crime is high and people are still not happy coming out of the pandemic. This is still very much the politics of normalcy. Everybody talking about how they're the ones to take things back to normal. Hope and change, it is not. CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, back for a new season. Find it everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Still to come, Crepe Girl brings French tastes and sounds to the Western Slope. This is Colorado Matters. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Brewability is a brewery and pizzeria on a bustling stretch of downtown Englewood. But there's more to the place. It's designed around patrons and staff with disabilities. CPR's Eden Lane takes us there. On a busy Saturday evening, the aroma of fresh pizza, the buzz of the crowd, and the band warming up didn't keep the staff from being both friendly and efficient. Stephanie, who has worked here for two years, greets me right away. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. What do you do here? I work, I, 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 I clean the table, and I pour beer, I talk to people, and I, I help with the weather show, like, take orders for beers and pizza and, and slushies. Just inside the door in the game area and sensory room, right beside the giant light bright, I meet a family making their first visit to Brewability. Marcy, who didn't want to share her last name to protect her children, has three lovely daughters. Kaylee. Reagan. So nice to meet you. This was more than a family dinner out for them. Mom and Dad wanted to see the possibility that Brewability represents for themselves. And everybody has to have something to look forward to for their future. Yeah. And this is an exciting thing to have to look forward to. So McKenna is nine years old and has Down syndrome. So that's the exciting part. This place is awesome. The food's great. The beer is delicious. And the game room is really, really cool. And just the accessibility for everyone, whether for it everyone. be in a patron sense or in a profession sense, yeah. everybody has a place here, which is super exciting. What does a place like this mean then? It's a different idea of the future than the supermarket or the traditional places that you have seen. It just gives a new light and a new excitement. And it's nice to see everyone here has a job and is important and has the ability to succeed because that's not everywhere in our world right now. Owner Tiffany Fixter opened the popular venue six years ago at another location, 
but when the opportunity to purchase this building on South Broadway in Inglewood came up three years ago, it meant expansion and stability were within reach. Her parents helped her buy it. The new location allowed Fixter to serve the people around her. It's down the street from both Craig Hospital with a leading brain injury and spinal cord treatment center, as well as the Colorado Center for the Blind. Fixture says her dream started as a special ed teacher. When she realized that many people with disabilities couldn't find employment when they turned 21, she decided to help. And so I wanted to provide employment for people that really need it. Um, almost everyone on my staff has been deemed unemployable by the state of Colorado. So they were sat down and told they could not work because they need too much help. And that's just shouldn't be the case. As more people venture out for fun as the pandemic eases, Fixture continues to enhance the inclusive experience at Brewability. For one, they added a new vibrating dance floor. So it's bone conduction technology. So it goes straight through your bones, kind of works like hearing aids. So what they used to have are these um, packs that you can wear, but this way everyone can experience it, whether they're deaf, hard of hearing, or if they just need that extra sensory input. Um, It's been really cool to watch um, kids that have never experienced music before feel it for the first time. It's amazing. All the extra elements that make it a fun spot to visit also give Marcy a glimpse of something special for her daughter's future. When I say overwhelming in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you do get to see a different future for your child than you thought of in the past. You know, because we're raising her for an independent life and we have the, you know, the skills in place that we're building. Fixture says Brewability has a message for everyone, including lessons for other restaurants. Um, I know restaurants are struggling to find staff. If you own a restaurant and you're listening to this, please consider hiring someone with a disability. Um, They're loyal workers. I have no turnover. I have a waiting list of 300 to work here. So it's it's an untapped resource, and I, I really hope that people would consider it. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Crepe Girl is the indie music project of 21-year-old Elisa Grégoire of Grand Junction. She's first-generation American, born to French parents. And I grew up speaking only French at home, so culturally, I'm very much so French, but I'm bicultural, I guess. Which is often reflected in Crepe Girl's music. Here she is with the track Je T'aime, I Love You. The reason why I incorporate French in my songs is different every song. And I never plan to be like, I'm going to write a French song. It just happens. Like, usually it's a verse and it feels right. But that one was because lyrically it really flowed it's a love song and for some reason i'm able to express more in french and i don't know if it's because the language has more vocabulary for like love theme i don't know but it made more sense to me and everything i was saying translated better in french Je t'aime. 
While she lives in Grand Junction, Elisa Grégoire grew up in Indiana. My parents moved to Indianapolis for IndyCar racing uh, right before I was born. And so my whole life up until now has been like competition and racing and sports. Grégoire attended Colorado Mesa University on a cycling scholarship. A few semesters in, she put her business studies to use, opening Lulu Crepe at age 18, a mobile crepe stand. Soon after, Grégoire had plans to see one of her favorite indie artists perform in Denver when she had an idea. What if they want crepes before the show? Like, what if that crew wants some crepes, you know? Like, crepes aren't super usual. Like, it could be fun as, like, a... Kind of like a gift, like, thank you for making music that inspires me. Like, I'll make you crepes. Spending that whole day around her musical idols, Claro, Mac DeMarco, and Snail Mail, earned Grégoire the name Crepe Girl. It also sparked a new calling as a singer-songwriter. I'd never seen that kind of inner workings of a show ever. And I fell in love with it. I was, like, watching Soundcheck. I was just mesmerized by everything about it. And then I saw the show, and I was like, this is magical. This is, like, insane. And Magda Marco invited me to see his Red Rocks show the next day. So the next day, I was on the stage at a table watching him, which it's like, it was absolutely, for me, mind-blowing. And so I came home and I had like four hours in the car driving, like, oh my God, what do I do about this? <laughs> at that point, I had written a couple songs, you know. I wanted to do it, but I wasn't, I didn't have the confidence to do it much. And then after that, I was like, I have to try all the way or I will never forgive myself. We've been hearing Elisa Grégoire, a.k.a. Crepe Girl. She hopes to head into the studio soon to record her debut album. In the meantime, you can catch her making sweet and savory goodness at Lulu Crate, located inside Kiln Coffee Bar on Main Street in Grand Junction. Oh, and as for her personal favorite flavor? It's easy to say Nutella, but honestly, I really like a simple like sugar crepe with bananas in it. No more, no. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I think my favorite crepe is turkey and cheese. And these are some of my favorite colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC, à tout à l'heure.